Hello, hello. You're listening to the Bitcoin Advocate Podcast. I'm your host Andy, and if you're new here, welcome. This is the show where we discuss all things Bitcoin on a weekly basis. This is the show that I wish I had when I first got into Bitcoin, which is why I started this podcast. This is your one-stop shop of complex topics in the wonderful world of Bitcoin, explained in simple ways. As a reminder, this show is available on YouTube, Spotify, Amazon Music, and a whole bunch of other platforms. So wherever you might be listening from, if you like the show, be sure to follow and subscribe. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com/thebtcadvocate. Today's episode is sponsored by myself. More specifically, I have a book called Hyper Bitcoinization: A Story About a Revolution. And if you're watching this on YouTube, there's a link down below in the description. Otherwise, you can search for the title on Amazon, and it should be the first result. It's not selling out if it's my own product. Last week, we discussed how our current fiat monetary system promotes violence and confrontation around the world, while Bitcoin can be used to promote peace. This week, we'll circle back to talking about the technology with regards to Bitcoin and how Bitcoin's unique protocol is used to solve an issue that is present in distributed information systems. Okay, you're like, what does that all mean, right?、Uh, so. First, let me tell you an allegory. An allegory is kind of like a story, by the way. So imagine that you're a general in the Byzantine Empire, also known as the Eastern Roman Empire, which lasted from 330 A.D. to 1453 A.D.、Uh, you're a general in the Byzantine Empire, and you're leading an army trying to capture a castle. The castle's defenses are formidable, though. Uh, and you know that your soldiers alone are not enough to overwhelm the castle's defenses if you attack alone. The good news is that there are other Byzantine generals in the area. Each of them has their own army that you can request help from.、Uh, so you do some quick calculations in your head and conclude that the only、uh, when you combine the strength of all the armies in the area attacking the castle simultaneously,、uh, only that is. Good enough to overwhelm the castle's defenses. However, if just one of the generals receives the wrong information and attacks too early or too late or perhaps not at all, the entire attack will fail. The issue now becomes a matter of coordinating the attack in such a way that every single general orders their armies to attack simultaneously. For this to happen, you'll need to make some arrangements with the other generals first. And the only way to communicate with the other generals is to send messengers with letters letting them know when to attack. However, this is also problematic since the castle's defenders have set up ambush squads in the area to try and intercept any messengers traveling back and forth. But even without the ambushers, messengers can get lost. Their letters can fall into mud or water and become illegible.、Uh, the receiving general may have trouble reading your handwriting. There's a bunch of stuff that could go wrong as well.、Uh, so for the attack to work, though, you must guarantee that every single general receives your message. So, what do you do, right?、Uh, so you think about this for a moment and you come up with a solution. At the end of your letter, you request that the general who receives your letter send back a letter to confirm that they have received your letter.、Uh, so you're about to send out your letters with this, and you're satisfied with this solution.、Uh, and you're about to send out your letters, but then you realize that there is a problem. 
Once the other general receives their letter and sends the confirmation back, how would they know that the confirmation has reached you? So for them to know that the confirmation has reached you, you will have to send them a letter to confirm that you received the confirmation. But then this in turn means that you're the one who cannot be certain that the other general has received your confirmation. Confirmation. Uh, you get how that works, right? So you'd have to send them back another confirmation and the cycle repeats. So it's there's no way that you can sync up like and make sure that both generals know that the letter has been sent. This allegory is called the Byzantine generals problem. For computer networks, particularly distributed computer networks where nodes, so individual components of the network, for nodes that are spread across physical distance or act under some other constraint which prohibit the nodes from being able to always act in a synchronous manner, uh, this arises a particular class of problems called Byzantine fault problems. So imagine instead of generals dispatching messengers, it's computers sending packets of information. In terms of blockchains, uh, a blockchain is just a continuously running ledger that needs to be kept in sync by a network of nodes uh, which may be spread across vast distances and act under constraints. If a large chunk of nodes suddenly went offline or fell behind the rest of the network, or, or the network just became out of sync somehow, how do we deal with such a problem without a centralized authority to come in and fix it? Right. So it's not a matter of, you know, a computer glitch at your bank where somebody could press a button and push an update across all the computers simultaneously. Uh, we're talking about decentralized blockchains where each node is operated by a different person or maybe it's operated by a company. Uh, so how do we keep a decentralized, a whole network of decentralized nodes uh, in sync. Any decentralized blockchain needs a way to arrive at what's called consensus. Consensus describes the state at which the network agrees that a block is valid and should be added to the blockchain. So how does Bitcoin solve this problem? Uh, Bitcoin approaches the Byzantine fault problem in a unique way. The set of rules that solves the Byzantine fault problem in Bitcoin bears the name of its creator and is aptly called the Nakamoto Consensus. So in the summer of 2021, almost all Bitcoin miners based in China had to pack up and leave, or at the very least cease all mining activity almost overnight. Uh, this was because the Chinese government had issued a new law that essentially banned Bitcoin mining in the country. Uh, but this was a problem uh, for, this was a short-term problem at least, uh, for the network because the disappearance of the Chinese miners led to a massive drop in the total hash rate. Uh, so the hash rate is, again, it's a measure of the mining power being inputted into the network of Bitcoin. So we talked about this briefly in the episode about proof of work. So be sure to check out that episode uh, if you want to find out more. Uh, but for now, yeah, the hash rate is just the amount of mining power that is being inputted. Uh, so at the time, it was estimated that more than 40% of Bitcoin's hash rate came from China. Now, uh, one would think that such a large and sudden drop in the network participants and the hash power uh, would lead to at least some disruption in the network. Uh, certainly, if the network in question was not Bitcoin, but some other you know, traditional server network like AWS or Google Cloud, a 40% drop in the number of servers powering the network 
would be catastrophic. Uh, yet, this event had very little impact on Bitcoin's network operations.、Uh, there was no downtime on the Bitcoin network. Bitcoin did not go down,、uh, even though it just lost 40% of the、uh, mining power.、Uh, blocks continued to be confirmed, and the network ran as if nothing happened.、Uh, so, the rules of、uh, Bitcoin's consensus model, the Nakamoto consensus, kept on working、uh, and kept the network working as usual. So, we can see that even during times of large and sudden extraneous events,、um, such as losing 40% of the network's hashing power,、uh, the Nakamoto consensus endured and the network did not miss a single beat.、Uh, so, let's talk about Nakamoto consensus.、Uh, to really understand it, we should begin by analyzing the two main components,、uh, which are number one, proof of work, and number two, block selection. Uh, so, we already talked about proof of work in much detail in the previous episode, so、uh, we'll avoid discussing it at length again here.、Uh, so, we'll talk about block selection and how that helps with keeping the network in sync. So, block selection can be further broken down into two main subcomponents、uh, number one is double spend resistance, and number two is longest chain wins. Double spend resistance simply means that the same Bitcoin or fraction of a Bitcoin cannot be spent twice by the same user. So, if Alice pays Bob one Bitcoin, the network must ensure not only that Bob is credited with one Bitcoin, but also that one Bitcoin is deducted from Alice,、uh, such that she cannot use the same Bitcoin to pay another user.、Uh, so, it's easy to see why. This rule is necessary, right? If one can successfully double spend,、uh, then this would break all trust and value on the network、uh, in the whole monetary system, in fact.、Uh, it is important to note that this component not only、uh, involves ensuring that no double spending occurs,、uh, but also checking whether the transactions in a block and the block itself obeys all the rules of the network.、Uh, so I called it double spend resistance just for. Uh, the sake of brevity, but we're also we're actually checking a whole bunch of rules that validate transactions, right? So,、uh, Bitcoin's block selection is also set up to prevent other types of funny business that one might try to game the system.、Uh, so, it, examples of invalid transactions may come from users who try to spend more Bitcoin than they have,、uh, or users who try to counterfeit fake Bitcoin by trying to spend Bitcoin that doesn't exist. Uh, or you know, just any transaction that is not considered valid. So, this step is meant to catch all of those.、Uh, so, the block selection itself、uh, must also fit certain criteria,、uh, being like the block size.、Uh, so, the block must not be too big. Any block that contains one or more invalid transactions or violates the rules, like the size limit, will be rejected by the network of nodes validating the incoming blocks. Uh, note that validating a block and mining a block are two completely different activities. It is trivially easy to validate a block since a node only needs to compare if a block and all the transactions within it fits the validation criteria. Mining a block, on the other hand, requires an agent to expend a massive amount of energy, i.e., hash power, to solve the proof of work problem. Uh, so, under this system, there's a heavy disincentive for any miners to work on mining a malicious or invalid block since they would be working to mine a block that would ultimately be rejected by the nodes because it takes the nodes 
you know, less than one second to see that it's invalid, but it takes a long time and a lot of hashing power uh, for a miner to produce a block and solve the proof of work. Uh, so if the block is invalid, if they end up mining a block that was invalid, this would result in the total loss of all the energy that the miner had expended trying to mine the block. Uh, so this asymmetry and difficulty between validation of a block and mining of a block is key to Nakamoto consensus. It effectively prevents any corrupted or malicious information from entering the system, as any invalid blocks are simply rejected, and no miner would choose to waste resources on mining a block that is found to be invalid. Uh, now, we should also consider what happens if a significant portion of the network becomes separated from the rest of the network. Uh, so, for instance, consider what happens if somewhere in the world a deep-seat internet cable gets cut or, uh, you know, all the satellites around the world gets hit by solar flares so they all go offline simultaneously. Uh, so we have, you know, different parts of the network. Since Bitcoin is global, there's parts of the network located all around the world, uh, but they become disconnected from each other. Uh, so how would Bitcoin react to a situation like that? Uh, well, for the sake of argument, let's do a thought experiment, right? Uh, pretend that you're geographically isolated, right? You're in a isolated part of the world. Uh, let's say you're in Iceland, which is located in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. Uh, now, you're unable to uh, connect to any servers outside of Iceland for the sake of this thought experiment. Uh, because, again, some solar flare knocked out all the satellites or some internet cable is cut. Uh, if there were Bitcoin transactions in Iceland, uh, those transactions would be grouped together in blocks, right? And added to um, the version of what the Bitcoin blockchain was before the outage occurred. Uh, however, this would effectively create a new blockchain called a fork, uh, since the blocks on the Icelandic blockchain were added without the consensus from the rest of the network located everywhere else. Uh, so due to the separation, again, between the Icelandic nodes and miners uh, versus the rest of the world. Uh, now, pretend that this outage were to end and then Internet access is magically restored uh, and then how do we how do we figure this out right so now we have two separate blockchains uh, the Icelandic version and the version that's made by the rest of the world so how would Bitcoin decide uh, which is the correct version of the blockchain uh, now this comes the second part of what I mentioned which is longest chain wins uh, as the name suggests the longest blockchain is taken as a true blockchain so during the outage, it's very unlikely that the Icelandic chain uh, would be the longest chain, assuming that the rest of the world were still connected and cranking away at mining the next block. The collective hashing power of the rest of the world would most likely be far greater uh, than the hashing power of just the Icelandic miners. Uh, this means that when the outage ends, we would simply follow the longest blockchain and identify that chain as the real blockchain. In other words, this rule simply looks at which chain has the most amount of work put into it, since the longer the chain, the more hashing power has been expended to create it. Uh, note that this rule is effective even if there are more than two competing chains. Uh, since we only care about the longest chain, we can simply pick the longest of an arbitrarily large amount of competing chains uh, and pick that one as the real blockchain. Uh, now, if there are two chains that are exactly the same length, 
uh, then we might have to wait until one chain proves to be longer, right? So if you just catch it at a point where you have two chains that are somehow uh, exactly the same length, uh, then then you're just gonna have to wait. But then the eventually one will be longer, and the fork will uh, the the fork with the shorter chain will die. Uh, but the point is that these rules of the Nakamoto consensus collectively ensure that Bitcoin can recover from a major node or minor outage uh, and prevent the chain from splitting into forks. Uh, at least on a permanent basis, it might temporarily split into forks, um, but it won't forever be split into forks uh, whenever such a disruption occurs. Uh, so anyways, that's it for this episode. I think we'll leave it here. I know this week is a little bit shorter of an episode, uh, but this is because this episode was a lead up to a topic that we'll discuss next week. Uh, and next week, we'll answer a frequently asked question, which is, can we build a better Bitcoin? And while answering the question, I want you all to keep the concept of the Byzantine Generals problem and proof of work and Nakamoto consensus in mind uh, and think about how this makes Bitcoin unique compared to any other crypto, either in the present or potentially in the future. Uh, so thank you all for listening. I will see you all next week. Bye bye.